Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is a man who is serving his 14th term in Congress after being reelected in 2018. During his years in Congress, he has earned the reputation of being an independent leader who always fights for his constituents, even if it means bucking his own party. He has been a staunch supporter of the first responders as he again stood up to his own party to obtain vital health care for the firefighters, police, EMTs, and construction workers suffering from 9-11 illnesses. He is a member of the Homeland Security Committee and ranking member of the Subcommittee on Emergency Preparedness. He also serves on the financial Financial Services Committee. He is a graduate of St. Francis College in Brooklyn and Notre Dame Law School. It is an honor to welcome Congressman Peter King to 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Congressman. Is this Mark? Yes, it is. Mark, how are you doing? Doing great. And you have that old Newsday guy there, A.J. Carter, too, right? <laughs> yep, how are you? Old, old being the old. operative word. <laughs> <laughs> yes, A.J. is the co-host and my co-author as well, so uh, it's very interesting. So, you know, before we get to some of the political issues, yeah. such as Belmont and legalized sports betting, uh, let's talk a little bit about your career. A.J. and I have interviewed thousands of athletes over the years, and we always enjoy hearing who inspired them to play the sports they played. So we're going to flip it a little bit. As a child, who inspired you to get into politics? Actually, as a child, I wanted to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, I was a big Gil Hodges fan, and uh, I lived and died with the Brooklyn Dodgers. When I was about 15, I realized my baseball career was at an end, and the Dodgers were in California, so that was it. Uh, actually, as far as politics, <clears throat> I always just believed it or not as a kid. I enjoyed watching the national conventions. I enjoyed listening to my father and my uncles and my grandparents started debating back and forth. They were, I guess, what you call now Reagan Democrats. They had voted for Truman, but then they voted for Eisenhower. Uh, and, that, uh, and also my father was uh, a cop in New York, NYPD, so he had an interest in politics. And it really was just something that was natural to me, I guess, besides, you know, again, watching it and hearing about it. Uh, and... Uh, I grew up in Queens, which had like a very strong local democratic organization. So there was politics in the neighborhood. Uh, and even, like I said, there were local Democrats, in many ways national Republicans. Uh, and it just grew on me. And uh, I uh, got into senior high school, college. I just started reading it all, uh, following it, never thinking I'd be in it myself. Uh, then when I was in law school, uh, a guy my father knew in the army uh, knew someone. This is like one of these real tenuous things. Knew someone who knew another guy who was a, a client of Richard Nixon's law firm in Manhattan. So I got a uh, at the end of my first year of law school. I actually interned first and second year of law school. I interned in uh, Richard Nixon's law firm. And again, small world. Uh, there were twelve of us, and they said they had six teams of two guys apiece. And my, uh, the guy I was assigned with, he was assigned with me, was uh, Rudy Giuliani, oh, wow. who then was an uh, NYU law student. Uh, he was uh, much more of a liberal Democrat those days, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, so we, and not only, and he was a tough guy to work with, he was, he'd argue over everything. And uh, so not only did we work together all day, but I just moved to Seaford, my family had, and Rudy was living in Belmore then with his family. 
So we would take the train back and forth every day. So we'd argue back and forth in the train all day. We'd argue in the office all day. And uh, we did uh, actually have one remember, long business lunch with uh, Richard Nixon, John Mitchell, uh, Pat Buchanan was there. Uh, it was uh, interesting times, and, you know, one thing leads to another. But, again, it's, you know, so much of this luck. Unless you're a multimillionaire, uh, you, you have to uh, uh, you really get a break. Like, I uh, joined the local Republican club in Seaford in 1971. Uh, the leader of the club that time, and they had these strong political organizations in Nassau County. Uh, he always wanted to be a judge, but basically the county chairman said, he couldn't become a judge, so he got someone who could take his place as the local leader. And since this guy had been a lawyer, they wanted to have another lawyer come in. So I happened to be the guy who they sort of groomed. Because in their eyes, being a local leader is more important than being a judge. And uh, so I became, I was about 31, the local Republican leader. Then there was a big fight for county executive in the county, and there was internal fights. And I ended up on the right side of those fights. I got nominated for councilman. And then uh, later laid for controller, and then uh, that was the one. And in 1992, I ran for Congress. I mean, that's a, a fast-forward way of saying it, but at every stage along the way, if something had gone the wrong way, uh, I'd be, uh, uh, you know, uh, writing wills somewhere instead of... Uh, <laughs> or, or, or writing books, which we'll get to we'll in a get bit. get to as well. But you know, so. the other question we always ask the athletes is, you know, their first professional game. And I guess the equivalent to that, the political co- equivalent, would maybe your first public speaking engagement while you were running for office. Do you remember much about that and where it took place? Yeah, actually, uh, when I actually running for office, would have been for councilman in 1977. And I was at a uh, meeting of the... Uh, it was, I guess, a fundraiser, a Sunday afternoon cocktail party for the North Belmore Republican Club. And I got up there, and I delivered probably the most intense five-minute speech. Instead of giving a 30-second hello and goodbye, I thought the whole world wanted, at least everybody in North Belmore, wanted to know my whole life history. And really, all, all they wanted me to say was, hey, it's great to be nominated. I'll be the best councilman you ever had. Thanks for all your help and support. And I'm there you know, whenever you need me. Instead, I said, I did this, I did that, and I tried to put my whole, uh, lay out my whole agenda in five minutes when I should have spoken for 30 seconds. So that, that, you know, that was a lesson I learned then. <laughs> Unfortunately, today in politics, a lot of guys never learned that lesson. They get up there and they really think everyone wants to hear everything that's on their mind. Uh, I like to keep it short and sweet and get out of there. Or stay, I, I, not so much get out, I'll stay, stay around and answer questions all night. But as far as boring people at an event like that, now, if you're the principal speaker at a, an event, which is a debate or it's a, on a particular topic, then obviously you've got to go for 15 or 20 minutes. But at a, a, uh, an event like that, uh, which is a campaign event, uh, it's best if you can just uh, make it quick, uh, maybe put a little bit of humor in, and then hang out, have a few drinks with them, talk to them, answer any questions they might have, but not, not give a long philosophical speech, which I tried to do the first time. One of the other things that I want to try and tie in, you know, politics and, and sports is, and it's fairly relevant with the All-Star Game this week coming up, which is done by a vote, and the Hall of Fame weekend a couple of weeks around the corner. Can you tell us about your first election night and what it was like for you to wait for the results to come in? Yeah, actually, the first election night uh, for me turned out to be a primary. Uh, I, 
I was the official nominee of the Conservative Party, but this is one like you, you can become an unintentional beneficiary or an unintentional victim. And I almost became an unintentional victim here. Yeah, there was a party split within the Conservative Party. So they, uh, there were people in the party running a candidate against me. He was actually a registered conservative. And, uh, again, I had never run before. This guy had some following within the party. And, again, here's a break. Uh, Ronald Reagan, this was 1977, had hardly ever been in New York campaigning. It's hard to believe now, but he really, that was Nelson Rockefeller territory. It was, uh, uh, that, that was, that was not, that was Gerald Ford territory. So, but that summer, in the primary was in September, in August of 1977, Ronald Reagan came, I was told he was going to come to New York to speak before some group. Some guy gave me and uh, one other person and a photographer tickets to go to the dinner. I mean, this would be great. Maybe I can get a picture with Ronald Reagan. So I walk in there, and the first thing I hear is that Reagan is going to speak on the Panama Canal or something. He's going to speak, and he was going to leave and go back to California, and there was no pictures and no one-on-one meetings with anyone. So, ah, Jesus, I, anyway, I can walk it out in the hallway. This is the Waldorf Astoria. Walk out in the hallway, and uh, there's some guy, big, strong guy, standing in front of a door. And we just start walking in that direction. He thought we were trying to get in the room. He said, no one's allowed there, only Governor Reagan. I said, oh, wow, okay. So we go walking down the hall, make a turnaround, and there's, a, there's another door, and there's nobody in front of it. So the guy I'm with, the photographer, he was an old photographer of the Daily Mirror, he opens the door, and who's sitting there but Ronald and Nancy Reagan on the couch by themselves? <laughs> so he comes in, and he goes, Governor, we're here for the photos. <laughs> so he says, oh, I'm sorry. And he jumps up and fixes his tie. I say, hi, I'm Pete King. I'm running for uh, a conservative party primary in Hempstead. He goes, oh, sure, as if anybody knew. So next day, you know, they took two or three pictures. We get out of the room. And I was able to do a mailing to every registered conservative in my district, <laughs> implying that Ronald Reagan had flown from California to New York to endorse me for uh, council. We didn't quite say that, but that was the impression we gave. And I ended up winning that primary by, like, I don't know, 10% or something. But it was, uh, that was tough. And then election night itself, uh, I didn't have too many tough ones after that until I ran for Congress the first time in 1992. <laughs> and in that race, my opponent had outspent me about four to one, and uh, he said he had like 1.3, 1.4 million. I had barely got three or four hundred thousand. We made the decision to hold everything for the last two weeks of the campaign. Again, this is where it gets lucky. Uh, my opponent, he had an out-of-town advisor who said he was so far ahead in the polls, he could take it easy the last two weeks and cut back on his spending. So. Uh, at a time, and unbeknownst to him, I was going all out with the, which then was a lot of money, $300,000 over two weeks, and he cut back from whatever he was doing to a very low, uh, just nominal amount, and I ended up passing him the last week. I ended up winning, I still remember, four, uh, 49.6% to 46.6%, wow. 124000 to uh, 116000 now, you've also written three novels right. in which, when A.J. was working at Newsday... And I, I, actually, actually, I was trying to find out. I thought way back when I'd written something in one of my columns about your novels, and I couldn't find it. So I was hoping to say, here's what I said back then. But you wrote, you wrote three novels, and yeah. the first one was, was Irish-related, and that was very near and dear to your heart and causes in the Irish Republican Army and things like that. And the second one was about a congressman. So what got you to decide to write novels? And I forget what you said way back when, so excuse me for not remembering. Well, uh, and, 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 and what is it about Long Island congressmen that you set the stage for Steve Israel, who later wrote two, later wrote two novels by himself while in Congress? 
Israel is just trying desperately to follow in my footsteps. <laughs> Actually, that seems a good friend. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, because we do have an electorate that asks a lot of questions, that makes you think about things. And also, I mean, I, I'm really, I, I, maybe it's like a Forrest Gump experience, but I mean, I've been around an awful lot of things that have happened. Like the first novel, as you said, Terrible Beauty, that was about uh, the struggle in Northern Ireland. And I was really one of the only Americans who was going over there in the 80s and early 90s. And uh, I saw a lot, and a lot of it was, and there's really no one to talk to about it, uh, to fully explain it. I figured I could do it in the form of a novel. And uh, so everything, almost everything in there is either factual or based on facts or is a conglomeration of events. Uh, that was, I guess, uh, just basically, you know, not going into psychobabble. I was just a way to get it out. And uh, you know, I, I thought it was pretty good. Then the second one, Deliver Us from Evil, again, it combined, uh, it was a comment, it's a novel based on two things which happened simultaneously in, in my career, but also in the nation's career. And that was the Irish peace process after 800 years was being brought to a resolution by Bill Clinton at the very second, at the very same time that he was being impeached. I mean, these things are on the uh, parallel tracks. And it was, uh, to me, incredible. And I was in the, the vortex, whatever the proper term is, going back and forth, working with Bill Clinton on a regular basis, including dealing with the IRA, dealing with the, the British government, uh, going down to the wire on that. In fact, the uh, Good Friday Agreement actually was supposed to be the Holy Thursday Agreement, but it was there were delays at the end, and I remember being up on the phone until 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning, back and forth between Belfast and the White House. So that was going on at the same time as that was all the investigation to Bill Clinton and uh, Monica Lewinsky and uh, dealing with President Clinton on that. Uh, I was with them on his trip to Russia that summer when all of the impeachment stuff was breaking. Uh, that was, uh, and so, again, I try to make sense out of those two things, which I probably more than anyone had a unique look at it, you know, both those issues. Obviously, there were people who saw more about impeachment there's others who saw more about uh, uh, Ireland, but I don't think anyone had the combined knowledge that I did of the two. <laughs> I'm, I'm fighting off a cough here. That's why you're giving sort of gasping. I'm not dying. Not exactly. <laughs> that would be breaking news on this radio. And, and the third book was called Veil of Tears, and that was about, you know, that was about 9-11. And in there, I mean, there is a congressman obviously based on me. I try to make him not at all heroic. I wasn't going to make myself like Superman, you know, jumping off buildings and uh, everything else. So I'm, I'm, the congressman is more somewhat detached. But I don't make myself a jerk either. But I mean, I, I don't make myself out to be the hero solving everything. It's more just uh, being at, like in the White House with President Bush right after 9-11, being at Ground Zero right after 9-11. And then also in the aftermath of that, trying to build up a defense posture in the, in the country and overseas. And also it showed some of the uh, misgivings I was having about what was going on in Ireland uh, because the uh, Ireland had become very European and they were taking, I thought, uh, taking on too much of a uh, critical view toward America. And so I have that, some of that uh, frustration going on in there. And I do it in the form of a novel about an IRA character and, uh, who uh, seems more intent on uh, being anti-American rather than helping the country that you know, did so much to bring peace. Anyway, it's, uh, I think it's all based on, all. Well, it's probably 90% some, is based on 
fact, composite uh, characters, composite uh, events, and then also others just uh, surprising what could have happened or you know what yeah, might have happened. Great stuff. We're speaking with Congressman Peter King, if you just tuned in. You know, if you take a look at your website and the pictures, it's clear you are a sports fan. You and I got a chance to speak briefly about the power of sports during the 1969 Mets weekend. You were there with your grandson, and we were talking a lot about that 69 team. You were in the 165th uh, Infantry Regiment of the New York Army National Guard when the Mets won the World Series. What did the 1969 Mets mean to you? You know, I was a, I became a Mets fan as soon as they moved to New York. I mean, I actually came to tolerate the Yankees between you know, 1958 and 1962, but I could never become a Yankee fan. And then when the Mets came in, they brought all the Dodgers back. I mean, not all, but guys like Gil Hodges, Clem Levine, Charlie Neal, Don Zimmer. I mean, they, uh, and so I just naturally gravitated toward the Mets, became a fanatical Mets fan. So as a baseball fan, it was incredible to me that they were going to win, and that Gil Hodges was going to be the, you know, the manager, and guys like Eddie Cranepool had been with them from the first season on. The whole thing was very magical. But also, I mean, as you know, we were discussing that day, I mean, the city and the country were in turmoil. I mean, you were having riots in the streets in New York. You had the, uh, I guess, then, and continuing to next year, you had the, uh, the pro-war and the anti-war demonstrators. You had the uh, construction workers duking it out with students. In the streets, you had uh, a lot of, obviously, uh, deep feelings. Uh, then you had the whole uh, changing of uh, mores among younger people, you know, college students, uh, American flags being burned, uh, drugs becoming more rampant. You had Woodstock. Uh, so you had all this going on. But the one, the one thing in New York that brought everyone together, and also got John Lindsay reelected, was... Uh, the Mets, and this was like almost out of a Hollywood movie. It was the 100th anniversary of Major League Baseball. It was a time when the, uh, the country was being torn apart, and yet here you had you know, the Mets, this really, uh, what had been a ragtag team, coming together in such a totally professional, upscale way with a guy like Gil Hodges and people like Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, Ed Charles, and you go to the whole list. And Absolutely, and, and you could see the way he was viewing the players, the smile that it brought back. Like I was nine, but it, okay. you know it, I have a different frame of reference. But it was my childhood watching that, and it's interesting about the way it unites the city. And we'll get to that a little later. There, there are two issues currently politically that are are on the table here in New York. One of which is a sports complex in Belmont, the future home of the New York Islanders. Islander fans, uh, you know. They're, they're sort of like Met fans as well. They're, they're always looking at the, the bad side of things. Um, they're nervous. These things have not always gone to plan. The lighthouse, you know, we all thought well, that was going to be there. Now Belmont, you know, the shovels haven't gone in the ground yet. They're waiting on an environmental protection environment, you know, uh, study. Environmental so, impact statement. An impact statement. Yeah. So uh, for the Islander fans that are listening, should they be worried, or you know, will they finally have their state-of-the-art you know, facility soon? 
first let me just say again, this is uh, a uh, Forrest Gump moment. I have a, actually have a personal stake in the Islanders. If you ever go back and look at the original lease from 1972, I was the Nassau County Deputy Attorney who actually, my signature was one of those at the bottom of the lease. I was involved in drafting that lease with Roy Bow and, uh, wow. and uh, Ralph Kaiser was the county executive then. So I've been a, uh, my son is a fanatical hockey fan. I like hockey. I, I go to games. I'm not the fanatic for that, but I am in baseball. But having said that, you cannot afford to turn away a professional sports franchise. Uh, I mean, this, you can't put a dollar amount on what it means to Nassau County to have the Islanders come back. Also, you can't put a dollar amount on what we lost when the Islanders left. I mean, that makes you a major league county, a major league municipality. And, uh, and New York is, and Long Islanders really are Islander fans. The Islanders have not hit it off in Barclays. Brooklyn is not a uh, big hockey town anyway, and they just don't identify with the Islanders. Uh, Islander fans are not Ranger fans. They can't gravitate to watch the Rangers play at the Garden. And so we have to get them back. I, I, to me, I, I'm not involved in the process as a federal official, but I uh, hope that the uh, town and county officials do all they can to uh, make sure that uh, it, it works at Belmont, that uh, we don't make the mistake that was made several years ago when the uh, Islanders were basically chased out of uh, Long Island. And I think that uh, most of the people in the key positions do want to get it done, which is different from the last time. And the governor has been very helpful on this, obviously. Obviously, that, that the unions want it, business wants it. Uh, there's always going to be some people who have problems with it, uh, so, you know, if they live too close to it or whatever. But the bottom line is that this is so important for Long Island. They have to find a way to get it done. So I, I would say the odds are pretty heavy that it's going to happen, but it's not... It's not over until it's over. Right. If, if there's one thing that may have a federal angle to it, one of the key parts of this plan is a new Long Island Railroad station yeah. for Belmont. And if it involves some sort of federal transportation money to help fund that, do you think that, that the federal government, knowing what's there, what's available, it's available basically used to have you know, money that congressmen give to their local districts. I think they, they drive that up now, that type of money. Is there any money you think that might be available if it came to that to help push the project over the top? No, we would have to try and get it. In fact, it's not like it used to be where congressmen were basically allocated a certain amount of money to distribute in their district for projects. Uh, that was, uh, it was a reform which I was against. They called them uh, member items yeah. or uh, you know, special projects. Uh, I, marks, I, I, I think it's important to have that because... Uh, you know best what's needed in your district, rather than giving all the power to the White House. Uh, so that's something we have to fight for. But again, I think if the governor and the two senators and the local members of Congress get together, we can certainly do it all, all that can be done. If that's all it comes down to, I, I would say that we have a very good shot at it, yeah. The second issue, political-wise, is legalized sports betting in New York. It's hard to fathom, but in May, New Jersey bettors wagered more in New Jersey than in any other state, surpassing Nevada and its Las Vegas sports books. That's an awful lot of um, revenue generated. Looking at how successful the model's been in New Jersey, how much urgency does that add to get something like that done here in New York? Yeah, you know, we may be on different sides on this. I really don't favor sports gambling. I'm not against gambling. I've I've uh, supported uh, uh, legalized gambling as far as uh, uh, cards, uh, as far as OTB. I was the uh, 
fact, a general counsel for National Off-Track Betting Corporation going back, God, almost 40 years ago. Uh, so I, uh, but I, I just have a real concern about gambling, injecting itself too much into sports. I know it's going to happen anyway. People say, if it's going to happen, why don't we have it regulated? I, I just think it's going to increase it. And just seeing some of the scandals over the years in college basketball, how easy it is to fix a basketball game, or even just one or two guys you know, missing a few shots at key times, uh, baseball, uh, the whole Pete Rose issue. So I'm, I'm not a big fan of it. Having said that, I think that it is going to happen. Uh, I think that, uh, again, I'm not in the state legislature, but I would say that New York should have it probably up and running within the next several years. And you're right, it's extremely effective in Jersey, and it does bring in a lot of revenue. But I'm, I'm not a big fan of it because I just think that it's, uh, it, it really can taint the integrity of the, the sport. I mean, obviously horse racing is about gambling. Uh, and uh, so that, that I have no, no problem with at all. But in sports where all you need is like one or two people at the right time or the wrong time to take a dive, uh, it's... Uh, you know, that, one of the things... Is, I mean, I, I, I've read a lot about you know, what happened back in the 1950s and early yeah. 60s with the uh, college... Uh, basketball uh, scandals. Basketball scandals, and that's something I, I'm just concerned about the coming back. Should there be a National Sports Commission to regulate this as interstate commerce? Uh, I've actually, I'm sort of changing the topic a bit. I have, with John McCain, we have legislation to get like a national authority up to regulate boxing. And I think that there is a role for the federal government when it comes to uh, sports, yeah. I agree with that. And I, I'm also, I'm against it, but, you know, the cat's already out of the bag. Like for me, you know, to to suspend Pete Rose, but then partner up with DraftKings and have their advertisements yeah, yep. in every single stadium yeah. is hypocritical That's to me, so point. it yeah. kind of bothers me. Lastly, this is a sports talk program. As such, we really don't venture into political ideologies. But for me, something that Eric Hillman, the former Met, said at Fantasy Camp, keeps coming back to me, and I'm paraphrasing it a bit. He said he keeps going back to Met Fantasy Camp as it renews his faith in humanity. As every year over 100 campers come down to Port St. Lucie, they put on a Mets uniform, they become teammates, they play side-by-side -side for a week, and regardless of economic background, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, they become united over a love of a team. And you see that every night if you go to... You know, City Field, you know, 14 to 55,000 Met fans. Mm -hmm. You know, you go out to the Coliseum and you see the Islander fans. You go to the Garden see the Ranger fans, Nick fans. And they sit side by side, and for two and a half to three hours, they're all cheering and, you know, high-fiving each other. And you can even be a Ranger fan and an Islander fan, and, yeah, you'll give each other crap, but in the end of the day, it's not as venomous as what's been going on in the political realm. Now, you are a guy that definitely crosses over aisles and, and, and gets along with both sides. But how do we bottle what goes up in the sports world and, and bring it to the political realm? You know, it's really everyone's fault. And politicians obviously bear the blame for it. But I think somehow you know, the American people, they're willing to go and, again, disagree at a sporting event and root for different teams and yet go out and have a few beers afterwards. Politics, whether it's because of cable television, social media, whatever it is, it's so, uh, you know, people are living in their own silos, in their own echo chambers. And uh, I think the whole country has to step back and realize this is wrong. I mean, we have to, we have to work together as a country. We have to, to me, you know, if, if you go into issues like right now, the Republicans control the White House, the Senate, Democrats control the House. 
So, so we sit down and negotiate, and you give the Republicans 60% of what they want, and Democrats 40%. And that's the way it was done under Reagan and O'Neill. It's the way it's been done in the past. And uh, I'm, I'm, again, I'm sort of making up numbers that I'm saying that you give, give, uh, give the other person something what they need. If you have the most votes, okay, you have more power and you have to use it, that, and that makes sense. But don't demonize the other guy and don't say that if somebody compromises. Uh, I remember when John Boehner was the Speaker of the House, and he got a bad deal and a lot of stuff. He ended up negotiating with Barack Obama when the Bush tax cuts were expiring. Basically, 95% of the tax cuts were going to stay in effect. And he got bombarded by right-wing talk radio saying he was agreeing to a 5% tax increase, <laughs> overlooking the fact that he was saving 95% of the Bush tax cuts. And now we see it in many cases with Democrats where they uh, want all, uh, all or nothing. And it's not the parties themselves. It's a faction within the party which has a veto power. And we had it with the Tea Party. They have it now with a lot of the progressives. I'm not trying to make this political, but I'm just saying that you get factions on the streams of both sides, and they are able to dominate the debate. And when you watch uh, uh, you know, so many shows on television or talk radio, you don't find people in the middle talking about issues. Or even right. people from the left to the right who want to find compromise. What you find is that people are never going to surrender, we're never going to give in, and, and that becomes the, uh, the nature of the debate. We have to get, get away from that. We really have to find a way to work together. There's too many issues out there that are important, and none of them is that difficult that we couldn't find a reasonable compromise on many of them. True words never spoken. Congressman, we really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure meeting you out at City Field. Hopefully you, you'll come on again. And, uh, you know, A.J. It was good talking to you again. Yeah, A.J., good, you know, good hearing from you. Mark, it was great meeting you that day. It was a great day. My grandson's still talking about it. It's wonderful. And I, thought, I got an email from Jerry Kuzman the other night. Uh. Whoever thought when I was watching that game on television in 1969 that I'd actually have any contact with Jerry Kuzman. You know, so. e email, no less, right? Email, right. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, Congressman, have yourself a great night. Great. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, AJ. You got it, Congressman Peter King.